0: Well, if you listened to um, Adam's prayer, he gave away my ending to my sermon (laughs) in the timing of the shaking of the earth, perhaps by purpose, I'm guessing not on purpose, uh, but uh, certainly as we consider, we'll notice at the end some of the language of the current receiving of the kingdom of God and what is at work in the current shaking of the earth. Here this morning, we jump into chapter 12, as has just been read for you. And this is the fifth and final warning or exhortation passage to the church that warns the church regarding the issue of apostasy. Some of the question for us has been as we approach maybe this final warning or exhortation passage from the apostle to the church is the question again, just by brief review, of why is it that the Lord speaks? God has spoken to the church with warning or threat for their perseverance. Here I cite for you three uses of this language to our benefit, noted by Puritan pastor John Flavel and the use of what he calls religious fear. That is, again, as we approach the final exhortation of this text of why is it that the Lord would speak to the church with threat or motivation of what we did here. He is a consuming fire. And the urgency of the exhortation will clarify this introduction as Flavel speaks of why it is the Lord uses such Language even toward the church. He says the uses and benefits are innumerable and inestimable. But I will only mention three. First, God uses such fear, such warning to excite and confirm His people in the way of their duty. Fear God and keep His commandments. Religious fear is the keeper of both tables of the law. Second, why is it that God would speak to the church with such urgency, or as we have looked at the warning passage of Hebrews, with warning or threat, not to someone there, but to someone right here? Why? Why would this fifth exhortation to the church be necessary, or how is it functional or useful to the people of God? Second, Flavel says, God uses this fear to preserve our conscience's peace and purity. It does so by preventing grief and guilt, quote, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart From evil. It is a useful word to the church, says Flavel. Third, third of which he says it is innumerable. We could continue on as to why God would speak this way to the church. It is innumerable and inestimable, but I will say only three to the third. God uses this fear to make us prepare for future distress. As a result, we are not surprised when difficulty comes upon us. Thus Noah, quote, moved with fear, prepared an ark. Hebrews 11, verse 7. So it is these three uses of which he says are of inestimable value for the perseverance of the saints. We will not be surprised when difficult days do come, having been warned to not go back, but to move forward. And this is exactly how it works in the sermon here to the Hebrews, as we see they indeed were going through tremendously difficult times. And these warnings of falling away, Due to difficult times, serves them to perceive rightly the difficulty that they are found in. With that high definition worldview of faith, that God is at work in and through difficult circumstance, trial, and tribulation. Namely, of what we see in early portions of chapter 12, that we would share in his holiness. Thus, we are not surprised when they come, but by grace, we persevere through them by faith. And this is the final portion, then, as I said, and the fifth exhortation to the church to persevere, to continue moving forward to God's response of revelation in Christ. There is one point I have for this morning, we'll spend a few time, we'll just go right through the text, and then we'll come back and conclude with how it is, I think it's necessary that we consider how it is that the writer is using Haggai. As you notice there in verse 26, he quotes from the Old Testament, he has done so in a number of passages That deserve their own attention. But at this point, we will conclude our time with considering the shaking of the earth. And that is, what does he mean by this? And we know what he means by it according to how he is using Haggai. I don't know if that makes any sense to you whatsoever. If it didn't, I'll probably confuse you even more towards the end. So just hang on to the end, and I'll finish my confusion. The first portion up front that we need to tackle the text, perhaps let me introduce it by saying this, we will handle this portion of Haggai and how the apostle is citing the Old Testament quote there of prophecy from Haggai because there's two options of handling this quotation. There's two options for us here and considering how is it that he's citing the Old Testament in this context for our advantage. There, there, there's two considerations here. The reason why we will get to it almost as an appendix to the sermon is because we can, regardless of where we come down on exactly how it is he's using this Old Testament quote, we both, regardless of how we see the timing of the shake up, we can both receive the exhortation from the text equally and of equal force and impact. So whether in, by the time we get to the shaking, if you think the shaking is here, and we come down to the shaking based on Haggai, and I think the shaking is there, guess what we can both do, regardless of the shaking time? We can receive the central exhortation from the text. So that's how we'll handle it then. Confirm one another and strengthen one another in the central exhortation of the text, and then we'll jump down to that portion where we can consider, I might think, a little more shaking going on here. And you might think a little more shaking is going on here. Either way, we both agree things are going to be shaken. So let's consider the first of the exhortation from the text, and that is, number one, I just have one point that I hope to uh, get clearly across of what I think the apostle is doing here in this final exhortation, and that is uh, kind of the bullet point for us this morning is God's revelation is consequential. Or we could say it this way, if that's not framed necessarily correctly, it would be that uh, God's revelation necessitates a response. And, and we have to, to consider this rightly. That is, when God does speak, when He has so spoken in, in the text of Scripture, there is, to the hearer of that revelation, there is a response required. So here it is, um, in not taking the, the name of the Lord in vain, as Heidelberg spoke of this morning. Westminster Catechism would say that the way in which, again, we've covered this before back when we were handling the Ten Commandments series, the way in which we can do so by taking the Lord's name in vain this morning, or perhaps right now, is we can just zone out. That would be taking his name in vain. His name is being spoken on. His word is being declared. He himself is communicating through the text by the power of his spirit. And I zone out. I am taking upon that name. I am doing it in vain. I belong here. I'm his child. I am of his people. And I'm not listening. Then I'm taking his name, which is declared to me, in vain. It is of no consequence to me. That is, every time the word is spoken... There is a consequence tied to it, or it necessitates a response on the hearer. That's the first and only point that we have to consider this morning. I think it's evident from this text that, again, God's revelation, anytime He has revealed, it is consequential for the listener. There, it necessitates a response. It necessitates a response in two ways. Number one, consider it forbids rejection. Look at the text with me as we consider it. God's word as it is spoken necessitates a response. That is, all of us in here hearing this word are required to give a response to what is being spoken. And there are two of them. Number one, it forbids rejection. Again, looking at the text, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The urgency that you're keying in on there already, that he is speaking to you, to the church, to each of us this morning as we're looking at this text and considering its outcomes is the language of see to it, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, look in verse 25 and you see refuse. Again, you see, for they did not escape if they refused. And then it goes on, if we, at the end, reject him who warns from heaven here there is a forbidding of rejection and his argument here in the context of what we looked at last week from 18 all the way down through 29 is this issue of law and gospel and it is that whether it is God's revelation in the law or his perfect and final revelation in the gospel either one that he has been expounding upon. As we looked last week, 18 through 24, law and gospel, whether it is God's revelation in the law or his perfect and final revelation in the gospel, both revelations, both words from God forbid rejection and refusal and eliminate any sense Of indifference. That is for each of us in here. This morning. Let us do away with any notion. That there is provided us. A place of neutrality. In hearing the word. Of the Lord. We can hear his law. And we can withhold judgment. Well I'm not so sure. And in that estimation, in that judgment that I have passed, I can say that I have not passed judgment and I am just simply indifferent. I'm not sure. I remain neutral to the word that I have heard. The text eliminates any sense of I'm not judging it. I'm not not considering it in a manner that causes consequence for me. I remain indifferent. The apostle is clear. There is no place for indifference and there is a forbidding of the rejection of the word of revelation do you see just consider with me in the text there is only one direction that is a direction of a response the response here that he is condemning he is urgently encouraging and warning you against refusal do not be found refusing do not refuse They refuse, do not reject. There is no sense of neutrality that one hears and withholds judgment. Look back over at chapter 3 where he described this earlier. Chapter 3 beginning in verse 7, we'll just kind of jump through the text real quickly as we notice again he is speaking the same exhortation to the people of God. This warning. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Drop down through verse 9, they always go astray in their heart. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He continues, verse 15, As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who's, who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient to what they had heard? Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Verse 7 of chapter 4, again, he appoints a certain day to Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Back in our text, that is clear here in chapter 12. It is the same at any point in history when the word of the Lord is revealed, whether it be in law, as it was there in that text of verse 3, or it is here expounded in the gospel, both Forbid rejection, refusal, and eliminate a spirit of indifference. I'm here, I'm listening, and I withhold my judgment. I'm not sure. I kind of don't care. Then a judgment has been cast, of which is forbidden, and the judgment is rejection. The apostle exhorts see to it that you do not reject he who is speaking from heaven. But then that furthers the argument, not only does the revelation forbid rejection, but it therefore positively requires something. It forbids you to shove it off as of no consequence or to then say, I will not bend my will to its instruction." I will not lay hold of it. I will not follow it in obedience. I just will not do it. That is forbidden. And it is also even positively required then that you don't just remain neutral. Again, that is a theory. It isn't an actual practice. When the creature hears from the creator, there is no neutrality. Thus, he calls you, the apostle calls you, receive what is spoken. That is the second of the necessities of response is it forbids rejection. Secondly, it requires obedience. Look at verse 25 again. See to it. Here's the forbidden action in the declaration of God in Christ. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't do it for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The language here of that which requires obedience is the heightening of the warning from lesser to greater. Much less. If they died from under the law, much less will we escape. You in this room this morning, hearing the word of the Lord, the warning is to you, much Less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The argument moving from lesser to greater, from law to gospel, is again the principal argument of the entire sermon. You've been sitting hearing this one sermon for over a year now. And you know that the principal argument at work in the sermon is that the gospel of Christ is of greater consequence and of greater grace for the people of God than that which the law provided. And it follows from lesser to greater that refusing to obey God's Son, He has spoken from the heavens. He has ratified a gracious covenant. And refusing to obey Him is of much greater consequence than refusing to obey God's law. The warning to the church is that the gospel stewardship, that which you hear regularly at Redeemer, that which you meditate on regularly, I trust every day, that your justification is bound with Christ and Christ alone. The gospel of God, the stewardship that you possess in a gracious, enabling covenant. Where all that is required is also provided, presents the highest obligation to further obedience. The gospel presents the highest obligation to obedience. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't don't, don't hear the gospel. Don't hear of the grace of God in Christ and refuse or pretend that there is a neutral position of just simple indifference. That's refusal. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, the giving of the law, of what he's been arguing about in 18 through 24. Much less will we, the people of Christ, hearing of the gracious work of God in Christ to cleanse and forgive, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns us From heaven, for the gospel presents the highest obligation unto obedience. Let me just jump through the text, as again, it's the principal argument of the entire sermon. So let's just consider the entire sermon briefly, and we'll kind of walk through the text here of how the apostle has been making this argument that Jesus is substantively greater than all of the old covenant promises. He is the fulfillment, rather of all the old covenant promises his ministry is greater thus it is of higher obligation for obedience to the stewardship of the new testament church number 1 jesus is god's greatest word jump back here and see how he opened with that in chapter 1 it requires an act of obedience Number one, how is he possible in making this argument? He has by number one, Jesus is God's greatest word. How much more then? Number, uh, verse one of chapter one, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us, by his son, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Do you see, this is the central argument that he's making throughout the entire sermon, that Jesus is God's greatest word. With this greatest declaration comes the highest obligation for obedience. Continue the second portion, the principle he builds into the sermon to make the same argument is that Jesus, secondly, Jesus' mediation is greater than that of Moses. So he continues. Move over, if you would, through the sermon into chapter 2. Into chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. As he continues to make the argument that the mediation of Christ is greater than the mediation of Moses. Verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking Uh, perhaps I got, sorry, I I, I jotted down chapter 2. If you'll look at chapter 3, chapter 3, I looked at that text and thought, that is not the argument I'm trying to make. Chapter 3, that Christ's mediation is better than the mediation that Moses provided. I'm just going to begin in verse 1 and drop down through the argument. Therefore, holy brothers to the church, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later, this stewardship that you presently possess. Verse six, but Christ, this greater mediator, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then again, he exhorts you, If you hear, don't harden your heart in this greater day. For the mediation of Christ is greater than that of Moses. Thus, the gospel presents the highest obligation to obedience. This is how he's concluding his sermon of exhortation to you, the church. Rightly conceive of the stewardship that you possess in the gospel. Third consideration of how the Apostle's been making this argument all throughout his sermon is that Christ's priestly ministry is greater than that of Aaron. Go over to chapter 5. And you remember there that as he makes the argument that Christ is a greater priest than that of Aaron. Verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the ministry you believers this morning possess and it is of the highest obligations to hear it and to heed it, to receive it, to rest in it and to persevere by its enabling strength. Christ is a greater high priest. Verse one, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, He is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever. Forever a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So it is in the priestly ministry of Christ that it remains forever and is the source of eternal life to all who obey Him. The call and revelation of the gospel requires obedience. Number four, the, la- the fourth argument of five that he has been making throughout the sermon, which is the principal argument that Christ is much greater than all of the Old Covenant ministries. His blood, number four, his blood is of the greatest efficacy. Look over at chapter 9 as he continues to build this argument of the beauty and the power of Christ. Chapter 9 that the blood of Christ is of the greatest efficacy. I'll begin at verse 11 and read down through the argument ending verse 14. If you join with me looking at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Do you see the heightening and moving from old covenant to new covenant? The blood of the greatest of efficacy by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more? More. This is the principal argument that he is making this morning that he is warning the church that the call and revelation of the gospel requires obedience of the greatest of measures. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And the final argument that flows from the efficacy of Christ's blood that surpasses anything in the Old Covenant is made that indeed it is that. His covenant is of the greatest of grace. His new covenant is of the greatest of grace. Look at the argument. He just immediately flows into verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So it is, the greater covenant is in Christ's blood. This is the argument that he has been making from chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. I don't say all this so that you could outline the book of Hebrews. So you can go home, maybe follow me, listen online, and be like, okay, what was that outline? I know that, that that's not the purpose. The purpose is you would see this is the principal argument at work in the book. It's not like a word in isolation. If the author thought up a good word and gave one right here at the end, he is developing the supremacy of Christ throughout the entire sermon. That we would see to it. That we don't refuse it, but would see its beauty and receive it and obey the commands of Christ. His blood is of the greatest of efficacy. It doesn't cleanse the body, but the conscience. His covenant is not one that makes demands and promises no goodwill covenant one that makes demands and all that it demands it also graciously provides it is a covenant of grace so to conclude the portion on how the gospel that is that God's revelation necessitates a response we would conclude with the apostle that the gospel presents the highest obligation to obedience, bringing with it where he goes next, bringing with it the most severe penalties for rejection. Perhaps you're asking yourself this question right here as you consider. If it isn't to be rejected or act indifferent as though it makes no claim or call upon my life, and if, okay, if the argument is that neutrality does not exist... And I am here considering by grace, through faith, I am laying hold of Christ. And I want to grow in grace. I want to experience even more the fullness of the riches that are mine in Christ by the Spirit. I want to experience the joy of the covenant of graciousness. I want to experience that. I want to continue to grow in in it, what then is a rightful response? If it requires an obedient response, what is the rightful, obedient response to this glorious gospel or this greater grace of God in Christ through the gospel? What is the rightful response according to the text? It is what we have been arguing for for a very long time. Perhaps it is because If you ever notice, sermons tend to repeat themselves. Have you ever noticed that? So it is that the response has been developing all throughout this entire sermon here as well. The rightful response is gratitude. Godward fear and obedience to the gospel. What he's been developing from 18, now he'll conclude this morning in 29. 29 that a Godward fear in the gospel is displayed. This is the right response. This is how it is lived out. This is how it is obeyed in a grace-driven life of gratitude. How do I get that? Look with me at verse 28. He supplies our time of application He just buttons it up right there quite nicely. Therefore, if this be the case, see to it you don't reject. It is of the highest obligations of obedience and perseverance. Therefore, with the heightening and the beauty of the covenant of grace that is your stewardship that we have by faith through Christ, let us be grateful. Gratitude. Let us be grateful. For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. One author states it this way. Gratitude in this present life is but the beginning of that thanksgiving which the redeemed multitude will express eternally in the heavenly kingdom that is to come. Gratitude in this present life is but the beginning of that thanksgiving which the redeemed multitude will express eternally in the heavenly kingdom that is to come. There are two elements here that gratitude constrains us toward. There are two Statements here in the text we need to consider. First one, gratitude constrains me, or what then does a life of gratitude look like? One that is Godward in its fear and its orientation. It is driven on by the gospel, not simply of selfish fear, but it is a grace-driven life manifesting itself in gratitude. What does gratitude then look like in this text? If we were to define it even further, number one, gratitude constrains us to offer our lives in worship. Do you see that? Let us be grateful. What does gratefulness look like in this present age, in these last days? It looks like our service of worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. This is mirroring Paul's language of Romans 12, 1 and 2, the language of living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship, Paul says in Romans 12. One in two. It means my life is not my own, but I have been bought with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify God in my body. Secondly, it is a call to maintain proper distinctions. The distinctions between God, who is the Redeemer, and myself, who is the redeemed. God, who is the Lord, and myself, who is the servant. It is a properly oriented life that recognizes God is the creator and I am the creature. Therefore, that flows from my life that he has so created and does actively govern is a life of sacrifice, one that is born out of a spirit of gratitude, one that by grace pursues behavior and attitude that is holy and acceptable to God. How important, final question for our time this morning. Well, no, I just tricked you. It's not our final question. Nobody move. How important is it as gratitude constrains and is the proper manifestation of what God has done for me in Christ? How important is it that I receive the gospel and cultivate a grace-driven life of gratitude? How important is this issue? Again, if I, if I have made any argument to you this morning you now are asking this question because there is no one in a place of neutrality that doesn't have to act or respond to the revelatory word. So we ask, how important then is it that I receive the gospel and cultivate a grace-driven life of gratitude? Verse 29 is where we find our answer. How important? He concludes with this word of warning. For our God is a consuming fire. See to it that you do not refuse him. Rather, be grateful. For our God is a consuming fire. Again, in light of the final comment from the apostle is that the gospel presents the highest obligation to obedience and it brings with it the most severe penalties for rejection. What is the expected penalty? For rejecting the gospel this morning, what is my expectant penalty? For sitting in here and taking the Lord's name in vain and disregard, what would be my expected outcome? Well, the apostle, again, making this principal argument throughout the entire book, beyond the immediate comment that God is a consuming fire. What does that mean for judgment if I reject the gospel and throw off a life of gratitude? Chapter 10, verse 27 says, what does await? What is the expectation in chapter 10, 27? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, that is the balanced punishment due to the supremacy of Christ in the gospel. See to it, beloved, that you do not refuse him who is speaking from heaven. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries is the only rightful expectation for one who throws off the gospel and a life of gratitude. With this final exhortation and this final warning, we then conclude the second portion of our time this morning. Whether we find the shake-up of the earth occurring here or here, we both receive that the gospel stewardship has the highest obligations for our obedience and brings with the shunning of it or the rejection or an indifferent spirit all the same, the most severe penalties of judgment. With that, in order then, based on the final expectation or the final exhortation of warning that is at work here in this text to the church, I want to conclude our time with a brief consideration of how the apostles' use of Haggai informs our understanding of the time of the shaking. I will quickly read the text, and then we'll come back and we'll consider the use of Haggai in the text. Verse 25, the the way of reading this text now is you're able to see it in its thought and its thought flow, and then you're able to consider what is my default understanding and should I consider it a little bit deeper. Verse 25, see too that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. We're clear on that. Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There are two views here. If you have read it, you probably are, I would guess, perhaps. uh, View number two, I am going to persuade you into view number one in the next couple of moments. Maybe not. I guess everyone's just saying, okay, fine. No, no, maybe not. But I will say that there are two views here on the shaking of the earth. View number one is that it's a present reality that is fulfilled in Christ. It's what the author is trying to persuade us to. That again, the earth has been shaken in the gospel events. View number two is that there is a future reality being discussed here to um, Christ, tied with Christ's return. When he returns, there will be the shaking of the Earth and the present, presentation of a new heavens and a new earth. View number one, just briefly. Consider in the text, brief number. Uh, consider in the text, view number one. The term says, "But now." If you look at the text in verse twenty-six, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. The issue here, if we consider, but now, when did the shaking of the earth? take place has it taken place or will it here be taking place is but now the apostle sees the essence is my argument he sees the essence of Haggai's prophecy as foretelling the coming of Christ and it is in play now so again Christ if we went back to Haggai he is the desired of all nations he is the desired he is filling the temple so when did the shaking of the earth occur it is but now that the prophecy of Haggai is in place now when Christ did appear. Jump down to the next consideration the text. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What does he mean by shaking the earth and the heavens? That is, that the gospel is now more penetratingly known throughout not only the earth, but the victory of Christ is declared in the heavens also. This is the supremacy of Christ in the gospel. Which comes with it the highest of obligations for obedience and perseverance. Number three, things that are made. As you see there, perhaps you say at this point, how could it be tied that he is Rocking the earth or shaking the earth when it's tied to yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, he describes the things that were shaken. Were they really shaken at the events of Christ? Things that have been created or made? The argument that I would supply there is that the term is better rendered fulfilled or completed. That is, you say, so says you, not the Bible translators. I think they got it right. They probably did. I would suggest to you that the term created or made there is better translated fulfilled based on its range of meaning, which again, heightens the supremacy of Christ in the gospel to anything we've experienced or they experienced under the old covenant. He has fulfilled the law. In other words, things that are made, he's arguing, is the law and its sanctuary, and its sacrifices. It has been rendered obsolete by the word of Christ, by His mediational ministry, by His high priestly work, by the blood that is more efficacious than any sprinkled before Him. And it has been done away with and made obsolete by the covenant of grace in Christ. Finally, the issue of shaken. Shaken is the removal of the law with its sanctuary and its sacrifices in the place of permanence of the gospel. There is no going back, beloved. There is no going back under the old covenant, but there is a perseverance of grace in the gracious new covenant given of us in Christ. Finally, the final portion is number five there, receiving the supremacy of the gospel in our stewardship now, verse 25, 28, I'm sorry. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. When will we receive it? We have received it now. And the rightful response to the supremacy of Christ as being citizens of his kingdom is gratitude. For we, are, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, with this glorious stewardship of the gospel, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Living sacrifices. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our time in the text this morning. Pray that you will...